This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odeschulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Baha'i Perspective is a radio program that presents a Baha'i perspective on life through interviews. If you want information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you're welcome to visit the website www.baha'i.org. That's B-A-H-A-I dot O-R-G. Or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. Today I'm playing an interview with Phyllis Ring. I was at the Baha'i Conference Center called Greenacre in Elliott, Maine, attending a workshop called The Holy Spirit's Invitation to Perfect Unity. Phyllis Ring was one of the facilitators of the workshop. She's a freelance writer living in Exeter, New Hampshire. I started the interview by asking Phyllis where she grew up and what was it like growing up there. I think the shortest answer is that I am an army brat. That's my background. So I grew up in a lot of different places. So the first seven to eight years of my life were spent doing a lot of moving, living outside of the United States in Europe. And my parents had met during World War II. My mother was a war bride from England. So that component of culture is a big part of my background. She's English. She's English, and we would go back to England fairly frequently in the summers. So my life had a more European connection early, say Mm -hmm. from age... Uh, just before my fourth birthday, and then I lived in Europe until I was seven, and then I was going back there fairly frequently all through my childhood. My father was from Boston, Mm -hmm. Boston Irishman, who met this lovely um, English woman in... uh, in, during the war, uh-huh. and so we wound up back in Massachusetts because that's my dad's home. So then let's say from the age of about eight until I went away to college at UMass in Western Mass, I was living in Massachusetts, either Boston area or central Massachusetts. And what countries did you live in in Europe? Overseas, I lived in, in only in Germany, okay. and my, that was my father's second tour of duty. My sister had been there at an earlier stage. Mm-hmm. And so that's my bonding cultural experience. You know, I spoke sort of half German, half English because I was young enough, and we couldn't find housing on base when we first moved there, so we actually lived with a German family, which was a wonderful experience. So mm. I always feel very at home in Germany. It's definitely my second home. And you've been back? Yeah, a lot. Yeah. Uh, I didn't go back for 40 years. And then in 2001, um, my husband and I had made a really good friend in the town where we live in New Hampshire. She was German. She had gone back to Germany, and she wanted us to be witnesses at her wedding. So that was our return to Germany 40 years after having been there. And I say our because my husband was also an army brat. So he's just a year older than I am. And many times in our lives, we were within blocks of each other in different parts of the world. We were both in Germany. We were both in El Paso, Texas. And, you know, we joke that there was only one commissary in (laughs) Wurzburg, Germany. So undoubtedly, our mothers were, you know, wheeling past each other at some point. There weren't that many people there. Yeah. So we we, we never knowingly met till adulthood, but that that's home for both of us. And you said you grew up in Massachusetts after you settled in. Uh, yeah, we the came States. home to my dad's home state 
I went, I, that was probably about a 10-year period in central Massachusetts in Webster, mm-hmm. which is right outside Worcester. And I guess, really, you know, that's sort, sort of where I integrated into the American experience. I, I touched down in Dorchester, which is where my dad dad's family had lived during his childhood, and then a short time in Quincy, but mostly it was in Central Mass. Mm. So, yeah, that was my Massachusetts growing up years mm. in a very Catholic town. It was my first encounter with... Catholicism because it was actually my father's religion, so I was raised in Catholicism. Mm -hmm. But prior to that, we'd been going to these sort of interdenominational chapels on base in different places. And I came home, you know, I, I moved back to the States, to this town that had a Catholic church for almost every nationality in the town. It was a working class town. You know, a lot of um, mills Mm. had established the town. So many people had come from different European cultures. So there was a Catholic church, each with their own language, you know, French, Polish, Czechoslovakian. It was very fascinating to me because I'd never seen anything like that before. Right. It was intriguing. Right. So what was your religious upbringing? My father, as I said, comes from an, an Irish Catholic background. So that really dominated in our family. And at the same time, my mother, being English, had grown up in the Anglican church. So my parents did a really nice job of kind of fusing that. My mother certainly deferred to my father's desire to see my sister and I be educated, you know, within spiritually educated within the Catholic church. But at the same time, I realized the more that I reflect on it, how much they gave us plenty of room for our own spiritual decisions. And they did talk about spiritual matters, more my mother than my father, Mm. but that spirituality was definitely a part of life that was acknowledged and accepted. And you take for granted what's there and you don't think about it. It's only as I've gotten older that I've realized that that's a really precious legacy. Mm. And my mother was is, was really attracted to the mysterious in life, mm. in part because she had a very profound psychic ability. It's kind of an inheritance in her side of the family. It was no fun to have my mother for your mother, because when you had really big, exciting news, she already knew. Seriously? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, not every time. Yeah. She would have been much more pronounced that way. She was injured very badly as a young adult. And after that time, that experience shifted for her. It had been a constant part of her life, and it became more intermittent. But it after definitely was a fact. After the accident, yeah. something must have really been shifted for her. It was, I mean, like nearly killed her kind of accident. She had more than one, but this one in particular, it seems from that point that she could measure a, a, a shift that and way. how old were you when the shift occurred? I wasn't born. That was before uh, okay. I was born. I'm, okay. my, my sister and I are 10 years apart. Mm-hmm. I'm sort of, I came late in my parents' life, mm-hmm. um, which they were glad because they'd lost a lot of babies between my sister and me. So mm-hmm. we're quite some distance apart in age. Yeah. yeah. So can you give me an example of how her psychic abilities manifested itself? Oh, gosh. I mean, there are so many. I, one of the most dramatic family stories is that when she was like five, I don't think she was even six. She was in England, of course. And they went to some town for some special event. I can't remember exactly what it was. But she knew the layout. She was in- incredibly familiar with where everything was. And there was, of course, no way that no physical way in this realm that that mm. could have happened. Mm. She also used to know when people were coming because, of course, in her childhood, people didn't telephone. There, t- there weren't many telephones. People would maybe send a calling card that they were coming, but often they'd just arrive to visit, and she would know. She would announce that so-and-so will be here this afternoon or whatever. That was a pretty frequent thing. Mm. Um, a lot of her ability 
was, of course, seeing things that are difficult to know, which is, which is mm. a difficulty. Um, I think there's part of her that was happy to let go of that, and that may have been part of the gift of that accident. I mm. think she found that very difficult to live with, as, yeah. as far as I could understand. Yeah. yeah. So how about an experience that you personally... I think writing related. Um, when I got my first writing acceptance, there's a very strong bond in that with my mother because my mother was a writer. You know, mm. that's what I saw modeled for me. And in many ways, my mother had to sacrifice that part of her life. So that has a bittersweet quality about it. But when I first sold a magazine article, which was a real landmark, it was written about the person I think of as my spiritual mother, um, the woman who really. Uh, brought me close to and introduced me to the Baha'i faith, who was about 80 years old when she did that, and I was, you know, 20, 21. So she was truly another kind of mother for me. And the article that I wrote about her was written after she had died, and it was focusing on the really remarkable effect that I watched this older woman, my spiritual mother, have on those around her, because she had studied scriptures of many faiths, the Baha'i faith as well, in a process of trying to index them. She was appointed to do that as part of a a task assigned to a, a committee, a research committee. And when you spend that much time with the Word of God, I guess we can say, from whatever faith, it has an influence on you naturally. And she could change a room. I mean, I could literally watch her walk in and change the emotional tone in the room. I mean, we've been talking today here while we're at Greenacre about the Holy Spirit. I mean, she was just a radiating beacon of the Mm -hmm. presence of that. So I wrote an article about her and a magazine called Unity Magazine, the Unity Church. You may have heard of a very kind of egalitarian, broad-minded Christianity bought the article, which was a great source of joy for me. Mm -hmm. And they bought it. I got the letter on a significant day for a Baha'i. It was a Baha'i Holy Day, July 9th in the summer. And I, I went to call my mother to tell her. And normally she worked really, really hard not to, you know, not to give it away. But she couldn't, she couldn't help herself. She was so excited. She sort of blurted it out before I had the chance to tell her. And it was amazing even the specificity. She knew who it had been about. I mean, she knew what article it was. I hadn't talked to her about any of this. You know, I hadn't told her, I'm going to try submitting this. And I'm, I'm happy she was still alive when that kind of thing could happen. And I didn't mind at all. Yeah. And I think in the case of probably both of the pregnancies that I've had, she was well aware of those Mm. babies, maybe even before I was, I Mm. suspect. I think there's a good chance that that's true. So any of that pass on to either you or your sister? Well, definitely I know that my sister has elements of it because since my mother has died, my sister and I have very candid conversations about the messages and the just the whole sense of connection with my mother. And I notice how specific each of our experiences is. My sister tends to get woken up in the night. And I've got to tell you, I'm really happy that doesn't happen to me because <laughs> I really love to sleep. You know, that would be... My sister wakes up anyway at four or five every day. So that's what happens to her. You know, she gets these kind of ideas or impulses mm-hmm. and then she tends to sit down and write them out, mm-hmm. I think, or type them out a keyboard. That's what I know of her experience, and I've come to know it better since my mother died six years Mm. ago. For me, there are definitely elements, and they deepen as I get older. When I was young, when I was 12, I began to have experiences where I would, the only way to describe it is to see scenes that later happened, and they were not pleasant scenes. They Mm. all involved automobile accidents that took people's lives. And for the longest time, It was a huge source of personal distress to me because I felt this sense of sort of responsibility. It was awful. And with time, I just, I guess it's a 
just a conclusion I've come to, maybe for my own comfort, but it feels right that I've started to reflect on the the spiritual reality and realize that that part of us is above and beyond time or space. And so perhaps in whatever that experience is about, I've been a companion. You know, mm-hmm. maybe I've, my, my soul has been a companion. That's what yeah. I like to think. Um, and the one thing I'll tell you in relation to these kinds of experiences and my mother is that when I write... Since my mother died, I think I've probably done more writing and published more writing, and mm. my sister has, and we know that there's probably not, that's not coincidental. Mm-hmm. We feel the connection of our mother in that process because yeah. it's what gave her the greatest joy. And there are days that I'm sitting and I'm working on something and I need to finish it up and I just can't quite, you know, something won't quite come. And suddenly there'll be a phrase or a sentence that'll do it. And then I'll look at it and I have to tell you, I know exactly whose voice. It's perfect. It's perfect. But I know whose voice it is and I have to chuckle. It's very that's funny. That's great. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. When you had these premonitions, of these automobile accidents, it was like specific, like you knew who was involved. No, no, I never you know. knew till later. What I the first time it happened, it, it was my brother-in-law, who just about six months later, we got the news that this had happened, and I was one of those in that state between you haven't fallen asleep yet, but you're sort of settled in bed and your eyes are closed, and it was literally like starting to fall into sleep and suddenly seeing something as though a dream is running before you but a bit more present quality than a dream maybe has. And I remember my response to that one was to sit bolt upright in bed mm-hmm. and say no, you know, just sort of like try to push it away because I knew what it was showing and what was happening. You know, it wasn't graphic, but and I wasn't knew. it was really specific either. Well, the car was very I specific. Mean, I mean, you didn't know who was involved. No, I had right? no idea at the time, but I had this really strong sense that there was some element of realness about it, even though it essentially seemed so unreal. Yeah. The second time it happened, there were long spaces of time between this, and the second time that it happened, it was a college roommate of mine who was killed in an accident on the Massachusetts Turnpike, very close to where I lived, interestingly, because I knew her from from Western Mass. And the third time that I experienced this, and I'm happy to tell you it was that's the last time at this point, I was in anguish for a long time. And then finally I remember sitting down prayerfully and giving it over, you know, asking to sort of be relieved of the anguish and to just let go of this and not sort of hold on to it with anxiety. And it turned out that that particular accident was an older person, was an end of life. No one else was hurt but that person. So it was an interesting Mm -hmm. follow-up for me because I was so fearful about not knowing who it was. What I would always see was the vehicle. That's what, and I'm, that's part of my personality from early childhood. My father was having me identify all... I can still identify an awful lot of the cars on the road. You know, that's just a, a piece of knowledge that's personally very interesting to me. Right. So in these, whatever they are, I guess it makes sense that I can always tell you what kind of car it is. Yeah. 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 So you went to UMass mm-hmm. Amherst after... After high school. High school. And what did you Two-year program at the Stockbridge School of Agriculture. You're familiar with that, maybe. It's, you know, Amherst's kind of more technically focused floriculture, fruit cultivation. The course I took is called arboriculture, which is all about trees. You know, I, I did it in part because it was so different from anything else that I had been inclined toward. And I was very attracted toward the plant kingdom. I was very interested. I liked biology. I liked sciences. 
there was a real mixed amount of reasons why I went there. You know, part of it was somebody I was very interested in in life at the time who had similar inclinations. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, I'm really happy that I did it. It was a very hard program because I would take anywhere from five to seven science courses in a semester. I mean, oh I had God. no idea how intense it was till I listened. Wow. To, but I'm really grateful for it. You know, I mm. and um, it was a small program of about 75 maybe in that particular course focus and I was one of the first four women to ever attend that particular major to ever be enrolled they weren't keeping women out women had just never shown much interest and a lot of my fellow classmates were Vietnam veterans who had been back maybe you know I'm like eight I was barely 18 when I went so they were all probably 27 and older but they became really prized friends. I mean, they were they were people who had been really shaped by a profound experience. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it's the spirituality that I sensed in them that attracted me. And they were very kind and protective of me. They were sort of like big brothers. Yeah. You know, they were very appropriate and very nice. Yeah. yeah. And there was a lot in that experience at UMass. That was just being away from home and growing up, learning how to be, you know, a more independent person. And I guess I'm grateful for the rigor of that program when I think back on it. It taught me mm-hmm. a lot more self-discipline as a writer, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. and things like that. And that was a two-year program? Two-year, yeah. Just an associate's degree. And then what did you do after that? Then uh, I really bottomed out for a while, uh, made a lot of poor choices, experimenting and looking around, and finally moved back to southern Maine, York, Maine, near here. And you say back just because... Well, it wasn't a back. That's not accurate. What happened when I went to college, when I graduated from college, my parents went back to England. They sold the house in Massachusetts, and they did what they had wanted to do all my life, basically. This was always their goal, as they would return to England. And they went back and lived there for roughly a decade, I think. So I sort of had no home here anymore. You know, my home disappeared. They had a cottage that they'd built in York, Maine. So when they came back there in the spring, I had bottomed out. I was not doing very well. I kind of came home. And that's when I decided to go to nursing school. I had worked as a nurse's aide since I was 14. So I figured, well, you know, I'm doing this work. I might as well make more money and gain more skills. And I enrolled in a program nearby in New Hampshire, a one-year LPN program. So once again, I took a very concentrated learning experience. I was attracted Mm. to those. They also had internships. I seemed to like that kind of learning, Mm. I guess. And it was, you know, it had a a quickly achievable outcome. I knew where I would wind up. I knew what kind of work I'd be doing. So Mm. I worked at the local hospital, did some other nursing work in the area, lived in my parents' cottage, and that was when I actually became a Baha'i. I had heard about the Baha'i faith at three different junctures in my life. The first came when I was about 10, and here I am in this experience of Catholicism where if you'd asked me as a child, you know, what what do you want to be when you grow up? I I want to be a saint, is what I probably (laughs) would have said, because the attraction for me in Catholicism was the lives of the saints. I was massively attracted to that. Read about, read about it, you know, read lots of biographies. You know, eight, nine, ten-year-old kid, voracious reader, this is what I was reading. So I would go to, you know, catechism. There'd be a library of books you could check out. I'd be checking out these saints' lives every week and reading about those. And I was in church. It must have been around Easter. I was thinking about this recently. You know, I'm about 10 years old, and somebody finally mentions the idea that Christ is going to return. This had gotten by me for the first 10 years. You know, I just, mm-hmm. if somebody had said it, I'd never heard it. 
And I felt very excited. You know, it was a new piece of information I'd never heard before. And I had a... What was the venue when somebody said that? Oh, like, you know, in church, in the sermon, the the priest made some reference to the... I assume it must have been around the time of Easter or... Just conjecturing that the... No, it was within a sermon that this was referred to, whether it was a biblical... It could have been, you know, passages from the Bible that relate to prophecy. And you know, in Catholicism, Mm -hmm. typically in those days, Catholics weren't reading Bibles. Right. That's not what I grew up doing. Right. But I remember this reference and I and it seems to me it was around springtime or Easter and it absolutely rang this loud bell and by this point I knew that I absolutely adored Christ I mean I was the kind of kid that would have contemplated being a nun you know that would have been in my repertoire of, of reference and thought future occupation yeah you know I mean I, I was enormously attracted so the thought that Christ was going to come again was incredibly it just I was riveted by that thought you know, the way kids find out about any piece of information and it's all they talk about. Well, I quickly stopped talking about it because of the kinds of reactions. You know, I sort of, it was dismissed or whatever. But I remember standing on the playground at my elementary school, staring off into the distance, thinking about it, and having this thought, you know, that, you know, what if he's... What if he's going to come again really soon? And then the instant thought that came behind it is, what if he already came and people haven't don't know or people haven't noticed? And from there, my memory, and this memory may be off by a day or two, in my memory, I go inside to my fifth grade math class where my teacher, Mrs. O'Coin, I want to honor her by giving her, <laughs> acknowledging her, um, for whatever reason, about once a month, she'd show a movie rather than teach a class. I think maybe sometimes she'd call attention to principles in there or whatever. Well, the movie she showed in my memory that same day, but around that same time, was the travelogue, the Chicago travelogue that they still, I think they still show at the tourist center. They've been showing it for like 35 years. It's a long time. Mm-hmm. It's probably getting very dated. And You know, I think I was not paying that much attention, but what grabbed my interest immediately comes at the end. You know, there's this camera panning over water, which must be Lake Michigan, getting closer and closer to this really distinctive building, which, you know, has a dome-shaped top and is white and it's reflecting all this light. And it's the Baha'i House of Worship just, just outside of Chicago. So, you know... It just drew me right in. And what I remember, at that time in my life, I'd been sitting in church and other places thinking that I really loved Jesus, you know, and I really wanted to be a good person and a good soul. You know, if I couldn't be a saint, then maybe I'd have to be a nun, whatever it is. But what was also, what I was also struggling with a lot was this idea that I was already feeling that exclusivity that begins to happen Mm. within religion, you know, where rather than feeling a sense of connection with others, regardless maybe of different religious paths, the walls are starting to come down. And I was very troubled by that. You know, I, I didn't like it, and I didn't think it had to be that way, and I didn't understand it. And I didn't imagine for a minute that that was what Jesus wanted. I remember feeling that very, very strongly. So suddenly I'm sitting in this classroom, and the narrator in this travelogue is saying things like, the Baha'is believe, you know, that all religion comes from the same source, you know, and all religions are from God. And I'm thinking, I believe that. You know, and then, of course, he continues to enumerate the basic teachings of the Baha'i faith, and that's what happened for me. As I, I don't recall remembering the name, I have to tell you, but I remember connecting with that experience and knowing that that was important and where are those people where might they be where might i find them mm. so it's okay to keep going oh yeah flash forward sure, five sure. more years and my story has a math theme my math teacher when i was a sophomore in high school 
um, was a person, is a person very dear to me, he's not in this world anymore either, who had had Baha'is as roommates in college, good Baha'i friends, more than one, and had spent plenty of time at activities that Baha'is hosted, genuinely interested in learning more. I got to know him better because he stopped teaching, and while I was still in high school, we became friends and began dating, which is no small matter in in my parents' story or mine, but it all worked out, fortunately. (laughs) And what the gift he gave me is that he introduced the Baha'i Faith to me by name. When he began to talk, I was very attracted to the name alone, and then I finally made the connection that that's what I'd heard about in my math class. I, I knew that. I was able to make that connection. And I think that because dear Tom Baxter be nice to name him too, was one of the most thoughtful people I've met in terms of the depth of his thinking about things, but he also sometimes struggled with injustice and, you know, why things didn't work. And he was quite skeptical, at least at that time in his life, with good reason. I mean, he wasn't, he was investigating truth for himself. He was not letting what his thinking be conditioned by the thinking of any other person. He was really investigating. And he had such regard for the Baha'i faith that I knew that if he was that kind of skeptical investigator and he had that regard, that was credible. That was important for me. You know, he was a mentor, in a sense, of helping me find that direction. And then it was about five years later. I connected a little bit at UMass. I noticed the Baha'is, you know, in the... Did you uh, seek them out, or is it just you just happened to run into them? I had too much going on. What I would do is I would read whatever the daily mass UMass paper is. I can't think what it's called now. Collegian? I, yeah, the Collegian. I mean, I read that every day. And I would always notice what the Baha'is were doing. And I became more conscious of the Baha'is. I wasn't ready yet. I guess. My attention just wasn't quite ready. But then, within two years, I moved up here, and I opened up a paper the size of the Collegian, not very big, you know, dimensions, 16-page paper, which is the weekly York, Maine paper. And there was a quarter-page ad (laughs) about something the Baha'is were doing. I mean, I can't imagine. They must do something like that once every 20 years. It's not that big a community, but it, it caught my eye. And my thought was, oh, you know, now I have time. Now I can learn more about this. And I'd been humbled by my experience. You know, I'd made bad choices related to all kinds of different activity, particularly drug usage and alcohol, which were painful issues in my family and became painful issues in my own life. And it was incredibly timely to encounter this at the time that I did. And the people that opened the door to me when I first went to visit anybody were these two 80-year-old treasures. I mean, they just, they opened the door and I fell into their hearts. And they nurtured me for a very, very long time, because I would have become a Baha'i that night. But I didn't know how it all worked. But what I heard, the person who shared, who gave a talk that night with some information about subjects that you know would be of interest and inform you more about the Baha'i faith, was actually a year younger than I was. He was like 18. I think I was 19 then. And I would have been a Baha'i that night. I felt I knew it was what I'd been waiting and looking for and encountered at those other previous junctures. I knew that I was right in the right place, but I wasn't sure what I needed to do or Mm. what was required. And it was about six months later that my my good friend, my spiritual mother, explained more about what the process entailed. And then I knew, Mm. oh, that's simple. Yes, I believe in that. Yes, you know, I'd Mm. I'd like to make this part of my, have this be part of my life. When you saw that article in the paper and you said you had dipped into this low point in your life when you had done things that you shouldn't have done, what was the relationship of you running into that and where you were in that low point? Oh, I absolutely feel that having bottomed out 
was the pathway for me to be paying more attention. I'd been humbled by that. I knew I was making mistakes I didn't want to continue to make. And I was praying. Something that I was always doing all my life was praying, all the time, talking intimately in my mind to Jesus. That's, you know, that's my spiritual confidant in my childhood. That's the, the foundation of my faith. Yeah, and asking to be directed and led. I think I'd also recognized at that point that I'd been kept out of trouble a number of times. I'd come very close to exceptionally dangerous situations. I mean, to be specific, people I know died of heroin overdoses. I wasn't using heroin, but I was that close to dangerous situations. And I knew and began to pull back and step back. And when I did that, I called on prayer to help reinforce my resolve to be smart. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was drifting, for sure. Mm. So you came back to York, ran into the Baha'i faith, and you hadn't gone to nursing school yet? Right. I I actually worked in a hospital, York Hospital, for a year because I was accepted and I had to wait to get in. So Mm -hmm. I worked for a year and then went to school between 77 and 78, Mm -hmm. I think, that that school year was. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even quite a year. It was like a 10-month program, Mm -hmm. I think. Just mm-hmm. very intense. And I already knew, I had a lot of skills already because I'd worked in different settings since, as I said, since I was 14. Even when I was in college, I mean, you know, I'd, I'd always had that kind of experience. I felt very at home in nursing home and hospital settings. That was, that, those, that was a lot of my growing up, I realize now. It's a lot of what formed me. Mm. I met a lot of really good people, both the patients, you know, residents and some staff members. They were a big part of what nurtured me as a person. It's amazing the things you don't know at the time. Right. You know, it's only in reflection that you look back and you see that. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened after that? You know, if I had not been able to ever run into a Baha'i up until this point, I was tripping over them when I got up here. I mean, they were everywhere. I went to work at York Hospital, having met this lovely older couple named the Lippets, Marion and Ted Lippett, to name them. My coworker was a woman named, my, my own age, we were, we were both just under 20 at the time, named Nadine Mariani, who had grown up here at Greenacre. Her mother was the cook. What Nadine helped me do was learn about the Baha'i faith and recognize that I could really come to recognize and love Baha'u'llah and be a Baha'i and also be a human being who was trying to walk a spiritual path. She was my age. She was candid. She's one of my favorite people in the world today. She's Mm -hmm. a a very precious friend and uh, and a a wonderful Baha'i, I'll add, who does a lot to assist people with their healing process. And so she was a gift. And then (laughs) I had an experience at York Hospital one night. I worked the night shift, so that in itself is a whole story. Mm. One night, a young gunshot victim was brought in. He was my age, and it was a self-inflicted gunshot Mm. wound. And he was going to survive. He was going to be okay. But obviously, it was a, a big trauma. And for whatever reason, he was able to connect with me and feel very comfortable. And he connected with Nadine and me because we were younger. I'm sure that was part of it for him. And we could spend some time sitting with him. He asked me to come here to Greenacre. I had never been here. I was a Baha'i at this point, but I hadn't come here yet because he wanted me to find someone who was actually working here. It was June by that point, so the summer had started up. It was only a summer school then. You know, I was kind of anxious about it, but it was on my way home, you know, in the morning. And I, they, they would be here, and he could tell me right 
where to go. And he just wanted to get a message to her, basically, that he was okay. And he had no way to do that. So he asked if I would be that messenger for him. And he sent me. And so his gift to me was he sent me here. Mm. I might have not gotten here for a long time. The minute I came here, I knew that this was a place I wanted to come back to. I think I'd been a little shy about coming here. I was a little nervous, you know, or something, in terms of my own inadequacies or Mm. whatever. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting that that was the means by which I got here. I hope he's okay. You know, I don't Mm. know what the rest of his story is, but I I bless him for that gift. Then within the year, I went to nursing school, and I kept meeting tons of Baha'is. I moved from York, which was not a permanent residence. We had to, my parents bought a place in Dover, New Hampshire. Then they went back to England. I lived in Dover. I went to nursing school. My closest friend that I'd known most of my life, who'd been to journalism school, graduated, moved up here, got a job at the local newspaper, and was here to keep me company during that year. And I realize now what a gift that was. Mm. You know, there's so many gifts you just don't understand at the time. And so I was able to integrate becoming a Baha'i by talking about it with one of the people I knew and trusted the best in the world. And once again, she was very positive in the way that she responded to that. So that was a nice affirmation for me. Plus, it was wonderful to be together during that time. There was a wonderful Baha'i community in Dover who just took me in. They were mostly young adults, and they included the likes of Randy Armstrong, you know, people who were making exciting music, lots of artists, um, and they're all still friends. They're all still part of of my life, Mm -hmm. and I appreciate them enormously. And around that same time, one of those people that I happened to meet is now my husband. I was in nursing school, and one of my classmates was married to a Baha'i. I mean, truly, everywhere I turn, you know, it's like you'd think there were thousands of Baha'is because they were just everywhere in my life experience at that time. And through this classmate, who didn't happen to be a Baha'i, this classmate of mine, a fellow nursing sister nursing student, through her husband, who was a Baha'i, I met my husband, who lived close by in the town where I now live, in his mother's hometown. And we knew each other, I'd say, for probably at least two years as just friends. And we did a lot of things together, just activities, just buddies. And finally, when I moved to that town, my first nursing job, my first official nursing job was in Exeter, where I now live. And he made a point of introducing me to the Baha'i community there and helping me know my way around town and we were married, that was July, and we were married in February. So mm. that gives a sense. I We knew, I think, by fall, and, uh, you know, things didn't take very long. We knew, right. and we acted on it, and here we are 28 years later. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you knew each other as friends for Yeah, time. and I'm so yeah. grateful for that. It yeah. was so, And we were both terribly taken up with other people at that time, interestingly, but they were both at a distance. They were removed geographically, so we couldn't see them. And I think we helped each other process mm. that, and then gradually we moved on from that. Yeah. That was kind of interesting. So you were doing nursing in Exeter. Yep. I got my first job and worked at Exeter Hospital. What I think, you know, I, I haven't worked as a nurse since 1986, I think. It's mm-hmm. a long, long time ago. It was a huge part of my early work life and my young adult life. And as I reflect on it, I think the most important part was the ability to connect with people person to person. It increased my skills because you have to do that to be an effective nurse. You have to have that ability to really listen and really hear somebody. 
and help inspire their sense of trust and confidence in you. And I always started there because I saw the best nurses I've ever met. That's what they did. It was all about relationship. And then you have your skills. And by the time I left nursing, the things that attracted me the most about it, which are to do with really treating, giving people treatments and doing things that help them, it was being so replaced by dispensing pharmaceuticals, particularly because I was a charge nurse where I was working, that I was pretty done by the time I left. What does that mean? I was in charge of a floor in an extended care facility. So you had some skilled nursing beds where people rehabilitated and went back to their home. And the other half was more or less nursing home where people would be residents and would stay. And I was in charge of whatever wing I was working on with anywhere from four to eight people under my supervision. That was the most responsibility I ever had as a nurse was in those last three or four years before I finally kind of retired from nursing. And as I was leaving nursing, I was starting... I had been writing all my life, but I was starting to write with the idea that I'm going to really hone my skills in this. I'm really attracted to this. I think I want to try this. So that was the transition. And how did you discover the writing? Gosh, I, the the person who gets the credit is Melinda Salazar, um, a Baha'i friend, once again, I, I met in Dover, who'd started a publication called Spiritual Mothering Journal right around the time that I was, my husband and I were new parents. The whole goal of that was to encourage parents to be aware of the spiritual nature of their child and have kind of a forum for networking, this little journal that came out every other month, I think. And she asked me if I would write for her because our oldest child, our daughter, was born with a very severe birth defect, bilateral club foot, almost as though her feet were as though she couldn't walk. If she'd been born in another culture, she wouldn't have walked. If she couldn't have had the medical care she got here, she'd have been crippled all her life. You know, there were profound spiritual ramifications in that part of our story, and prayer was an enormous part of that. So Melinda asked me if I would write about it, which was very therapeutic for me, and I did. And I remember as she pulled it out of the printer, it was the old style, these huge machines where you typeset things. Mimeograph. and yeah. She'd borrowed the equipment, and I was there with her helping. I was proofing stuff. I agreed to help, you know, do stuff. And I remember the words she uttered when she pulled it out were, she's looking at it, I think we have a real writer here. And it was as though I'd just been waiting for someone to maybe acknowledge that that might be, it was like permission. It was a sense of permission. I really admired her, and I still do. She's a good writer. She's an artist. She's a creative person. And I felt very validated by the fact that she would see that in what I tried to create. So I continued to write a column for that publication. That got me started. And then I, you know, did a series of things. I, you know, there were times I wasn't working and I was at home with my children and then times when I'd be back at work, sort of, you know, went back and forth between those mm-hmm. as a young parent. Yeah. Um, but writing became very self-sustaining. It became a very important part of my own life. Mm. For sure. And it eventually evolved into working for a group of newspapers, so it formalized it. That was my formal training. You know, you have to write for deadline. You have to become multifaceted. You you have to pick up skills. And eventually I was an editor for them, despite the fact I have no education to be an editor other than experience. Mm. And that was a whole other level of training as well in the process. So you had, at some point, left nursing because you sort of... What happened is my husband went back to school for his master's in engineering because that's what he's born to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, he recognized that, and we talked about it, and we worked out an arrangement where I worked evenings and he went to school days, so our children always had one of their parents with them, and we had a few helpers. Fortunately, we didn't have daycare. We were able to be with our kids, and that was a a two-and-a-half, almost three-year period when I was the breadwinner as that charge nurse. And by the end of that three years, I, I was crispy is what I like to say I was burned out you know it's it's immensely demanding 
and particularly when you're the mother of two small children and all the other factors of life. I'm really grateful I did it. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't trade it. It was, right. again, a lot of my personal growing up happened right yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. So then he finished school and went to work. Got a then, job, fortunately, yeah. and said to me, I think we took about a six-month transition period where I cut back to maybe, I don't know, 25 or 30 hours. I could wean back. And finally he said, you know, thank you. You know, thank you for all that you've done. And if you want to stop, I think economically we'll be okay. We can we can work that out. And he knew I wanted to write, and that's what I began to do. Mm-hmm. And I quickly, probably by the grace of God, I'm sure, sold some articles and everything associated with the writing I did always was about something more than writing it and publishing it. It always had to do with the impact it would have on the life of the person that it related to. Because most of the early writing I did would be interviewing people, Mm. profiles, stories about people in their lives, or, you know, the powerful element of the story in their life, especially the spiritual aspect. And I wrote for a number of regional magazines around here in New Hampshire. They were, there were a lot of them then. I was lucky. There were a lot of markets. So it wasn't difficult getting into... No. I mean, I, I still look back at that today, and I think it's a fluke. I think it's because I needed something to make me not give up, because it did become difficult. That was the 80s when things were flush, and then everything crashed. You know, as the economy crashed, writing markets completely dried up. That was when I went to work for the newspaper, formally at the newspaper, which newspaper? It was a group of newspapers in southern New Hampshire. At the time, it was called Rockingham County Newspapers. They were twice-weeklies or weekly papers. And then they merged together with what is the local daily paper for this area. It's called the Portsmouth Herald. It's all owned by the same company now, and I still write for them. I still write a column for them. I worked for them in-house for just five years, I guess. In what capacity? I started off as a part-time copy editor and advanced to being their features and arts editor, which was just ice cream. I mean, can you imagine? You get to talk to all these musicians and artists and go to plays and go to art galleries. I mean, and that was that's what I cut my teeth on. I also had to write anywhere from two to three pieces of work in a week, which is a lot when you have a full-time job, but it trained me to not be afraid of writing. You know, so you got your foot in the door by being the copy editor. Absolutely. I got my foot in the door by doing like the community news stuff and the community calendar, you know, the women's club this and the, you know, whatever. And I trained with a woman, once again, I'd like to acknowledge because she's in the next world, named Audrey Stomorowski, who is a precious sister. She was such a mentor for me in that whole process. All my life, I realize. I have had this sense of feeling strongly attracted to what's drawing me, but needing a sense that someone kind of pushes the door open wider and says, it's okay, come in here. And there have just been these people, these souls all along that have done that. And Audrey did that for me as a writer and as an editor. She was the one who encouraged that maybe I be considered for a more advanced position there. And she also made it easy for me when I worked with her to do lots of writing, which she knew I loved to do. And I had been writing for the paper on a freelance basis. And she said, I don't want you to feel you have to stop that. We really love having your stuff. So she was very accommodating. Mm. And she was just a spiritual gem. She's a person with whom I could have spiritual conversations. And when you work in a newsroom... That really comes to mean a lot. And when I worked there, you know, I wasn't covering hard news, but I was very connected with those who were because I'd be copy editing their stuff, proofing it in the news meetings with them. You got to know those people. You're a team. And a newsroom can be an incredibly negative place. Mm. And the kinds of things that happened around here during the time I worked there were 
this may not mean anything to anybody who hears this, but the Pamela Smart trial, you know, a trial in which a, a high school, a, a woman who worked for a local high school was accused of setting up the murder of her husband and was, in fact, eventually convicted along with three teenagers. Well, my good friend Dick Grover, who also happens to be a Baha'i, lived in my town at the time, and he worked as a part-time reporter, and he went and did a whole lovely interview with those teenagers and that she wasn't really a teacher, but she was a, a staff member while they were working on that project. And the job I had, I was picking up the phone, talking with her when she'd be calling in about her press releases. So here you have this intimate contact with people, and then you're having these huge stories associated with their lives. And then as a Baha'i, I was around 1990 or so, early 90s, our community had a strong commitment to racial unity, and we decided we're going to start observing Race Unity Day. No matter what it takes, we're small, but let's do something. Well, wouldn't you know, I'm sitting in the newsroom. It's two weeks after we've decided this. The Ku Klux Klan shows up in my town, and they showed up with a vengeance. You know, it's too long a story to go into, but it became the doorway by which those of us who cared deeply about the issue of race unity in America had a chance in this small town to begin to take action in relation to that. It was a profound time. And here I am sitting in this newsroom with all of this flowing through the place where I work. And I know today that none of that's any coincidence. Mm. But there was some fairly large news that happened here close to home that had national coverage that was happening right there in that newsroom, you know, while I'm in the thick of that, which was very mm. intriguing as mm. I think back on it. How long were you the editor of the FIC? Let's see, that was about three years. It was the, the mm. larger share of the time I was there. You know, the people I worked with and the editor who was my supervisor were very generous people. I mean, you know, he would give me all kinds of chances to try stuff out. He was the best mentor he could try to be. You know, he let me do things like get involved in design of pages and layout. And, you know, I wasn't really that good at that, but at least he gave me the opportunity to experiment creatively mm -hmm. because it's fun not only to decide what the content will be, but to decide what, how it will appear, what it will look like. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. And I mean, I got to talk to all kinds of wonderful artists. Authors, of course, are always my favorite. <laughs> Musicians. The little place in town called the Loaf and Ladle in my town had a remarkable roster of folk performers at that time. Mm. Weekly. You know, five to six acts a week in this little teeny cafe place. So all kinds of good people were coming, you know, fun folks were coming through the area. It was yeah. really a treat. So what happened after that? After that, you know, I was reaching a saturation point. You can only, I knew I could only stay working in a newsroom for so long. It literally became physically distressful for me. I would go into work, and by late morning, I would feel anxious. I would feel uncomfortable. I knew that I wasn't going to be able to last in an environment like that. Had I been able to do more freelance work, I probably would have lasted longer, and I knew I was ready for a change. So at that time, I was kind of voluntarily offering some service here at Greenacre to do things like help with promotion of, of some programs, do some press work, because that's what I did, and that's what I knew about. And then they used to plan a couple of events in the summer that the kind of concert picnics that are held here now kind of evolved out of. World Unity Celebrations. They had a couple of those. I was part of a volunteer task force of people that would meet for months. We'd come over and meet with the administrators and plan those. So at the time all that was happening, I got to know the staff well, the administrators and the program director. I knew I was ready for a change at work, and I was at some event, and I heard someone say, Dear Marion Johnson, the kind soul who was serving as the program coordinator at the time, was going to leave. She was moving and she was leaving the job. And somebody said to me, gee, you know, did you ever think you might like to investigate? 
And uh, so I did, and I guess that was probably May, and by the end of August, I had been hired. And um, my son, who carries some of the same abilities that exist in my mother's family, was about 12. He was 11 or 12 at the time. And two days before I got the news and was invited to serve here and take that job, he came downstairs in the morning and he said, are dreams real, Mom? You know, and I always try to answer questions like that openly. I said, well, you know, Toby, what's on your mind? You know, why do you ask? And he said, well, last night, you know, I dreamt that we all got up in the morning and Dad went to work and Vanessa went to school and I went to school and you went to Greenacre. And I knew the minute he told me that, that that wasn't random. And I think it was that afternoon that mm. Ray LaBelle, who was the, one of the co-administrators, called very kindly to ask if I'd like to take this job. When I left the newspaper, oh gosh, I gave him like a month's notice. I'd never given that much notice anywhere. Then it was torture. You know, I like to just, goodbyes are very difficult. They, you know, I'm one of those people, I struggle with goodbyes, and even though they're very important. People would be walking up to me at the newspaper and yelling at me in a nice way because they were angry that I was leaving. People would walk up and dissolve in tears on my shoulder. You know, the people who had seemed unemotional, I mean, it's terrible. You, you can't ever assess people. You don't know. But I jumped to all kinds of conclusions about these people around me, and they just, you know, dispelled them all in this bizarre behavior. And I remember talking with this wonderful friend of mine, this grandmother age woman who's a member of the local NACP. I was at the summer picnic. And she said, well, you know, honey, how you doing? And, you know, I, this is exciting. You're going to start your new job. How are you feeling? I said, well, I explained to her what was happening. And she said, well, you know, maybe this is just God's training for you to be learning how to make these goodbyes and just opening up to, you know, what this is going to bring you. And I remember that having an instant ring of truth. I, right. I knew she was right. And a week later, I'm here at Greenacre for my first week. And the first program that I was part of was the Labor Day weekend. And that was when the LaBelles, the administrators, kind of introduced me at the start of the weekend, and it was a high. You know, you're there on Friday night, and you feel connected with everybody, and you're all flying together, and you have all that spirit through the weekend. And then on Monday morning, I realized what I had never thought of is that I was going to have to say goodbye to people week and I was going to have to do it. all that practice for that month was because part of my job description despite the fact I'd never internalized it was going to be making goodbyes with people who were going to have a very hard time leaving mm -hmm. and being part of that process for them which was of course very humbling and at mm -hmm. the time very alarming <laughs> to me but it was an amazing irony in the mm -hmm. in the process of that mm -hmm. transition wow and you were program director for how long? Five years. I seem to do things in five-year <laughs> cycles. They do yeah. seem to be my cycle. You know, I've yeah. been very intrigued by observing that. After you were program director, what did you do? After I was program director, I kept waiting for my next job. I, I began to feel when it was time to leave. Every job has a shelf life, and I think when you offer service in a setting within the Baha'i faith, certainly, that that's a given when you when you come you know that that's a fact and i was feeling that that time of transition was coming and that somebody else needed to come for greenacre's sake which is all proven so true because at the time i left greenacre literally underwent a huge transition i was with it for the transition that took it from being a summer school to a full-time, year-round facility. And that's what I tend to do in the jobs I've been in. I tend to be in those sort of midwifing of going from one stage to the next. There's a whole pattern of that all my life, all my work life. And when I left, I kept waiting for the next job. And of course, I was really hungry to write because even though I'd worked for a newspaper, I wasn't always able to do all the kind of writing that I really wanted to do. Well, I started to write while I was working here at Greenacre because it was a possibility. If I was careful with my time, on my own time, 
And I'd, I'd amassed a lot of manuscripts working for the paper, and I could use them. I could resell them. I could, res- you know, I had a lot of work I could sell from already. And I began to sell articles to parenting magazines. And the first paycheck arrived, and I looked down at it and realized that it was the paycheck I was taking home <laughs> every two weeks in my work here. You know, economically, yeah. I needed to be working. I needed to know I was going to generate income. But I, I was always looking for that next boat to step into because that had been the pattern of my work life. And this time, mm-hmm. that boat didn't seem to be there. And it, it became clear to me, you make your own way now. This is it. And I talked with my husband about it. He said, of course. He said, absolutely. You know, why not? Why do you, you don't have to, and he said, and if not, you can change your mind and you go find part-time work, whatever it takes. Mm. So out of that, that was... Now, uh, was it hard getting your foot in the door again to be a freelance writer? I'd done it all along. From the time I started writing in my late 20s and began publishing all the way through my time at the newspaper and here at Greenacre. When I left the newspaper, they kept asking me to write for them freelance. And I I got my plum choice of assignments. So, And from that, I would always take work and purloin it for other markets. I'd Mm -hmm. then find ways to sell it to magazines. One of the things I was able to do early was develop a sense of how to scope out markets. I realized how important that was and that if you're going to sell nonfiction writing, which is what I've made my money doing, magazine writing, you have to enjoy what I call the hunt, which is you have to really like looking through all those markets and getting a sense of what they are and what might be right for them. And then you look for where they actually are making calls for submissions, and you listen carefully to what they're looking for. And the Mm. gift for me is I got to be an editor in that process. So I began to know what it feels like on that Mm. side of the desk. I could think more like that person. It doesn't mean I always succeed. I get plenty of rejections. I will always get rejections. But part of my approach is to send out so much stuff that you increase the probability of the yeses. That's part of sort of the game Mm. with that kind of writing. When I left here, I was determined to see what I could do. And what Mm. I was able to do quickly, and it's it's an easy thing to, to describe. I hope I can do it quickly. There's a woman named Valerie Cunningham who through 35 years of life work and more had unearthed black history in this part of New Hampshire and that the outgrowth of that, the fruit, is this beautiful thing called the Portsmouth Black Heritage Trail. It's a wondrous resource. People should know about it all around the country. It's a model for study to duplicate in other places. It covers four centuries of history of the involvement of people of African descent in this part of the country and most people don't think about people of African descent being here, especially for 400 years. So I loved her story. I had written about her for the newspaper. What was my launching pad for freelance success is that I sold that story over and over. Not the same exact story, but from that work, I sold that 12 times. I made a substantial income off that one story to 12 different kinds of markets. I did the same thing with some writing I'd done about girls and body image and the issues related with that image distortion, which at that time was very current and new. That was a brand new topic of conversation. So all those parenting magazines, that's what I was selling to them. My my son summed it all up when he came home with a high school buddy. When I was six months into this, the friend says, you know, I'm at the computer, and the friend says, oh, your mother's a writer, huh? And Toby says, well, I don't know if she's a writer. She just keeps selling the same articles over and over again. And that pretty much sums up what allowed me to get sort of credits from places like Ms. Magazine, Yankee, markets that people had heard of that I would never be writing for typically. But mm. it was a, I, had good sto- I had a good story that was the timing was right. Mm. I was lucky. And I, again, figured that's the grace of God in life. Mm. With that, I, within, I don't know, six months, got an offer to teach for something that's based in Connecticut called the Institute of Children's Literature. I actually teach a course 
about writing for adults rather than children called the Breaking into Print course. It's primarily uh, short writing, magazine-length writing, fiction and nonfiction, and I've done that now, I guess, for five years. It's one of my favorite aspects of my writing life because I love supporting others in their work. It's a privilege to read other people's work and mm. try to help, try to support them, try to mentor in some regard, and certainly I learn from them. And it keeps your own writing fresh. I think mm. it's important to read other people's work to stay fresh. And then I think, uh, let's see, a year after I left Greenacre, while I was at Green Greenacre in my last year, our daughter was in China working as a teacher. So we went to visit her as a family and fell in love with China. Mm. And a year after I left Greenacre, she was the only teacher for a thousand students in the city of Shanghai, which was an impossible ratio. So all those lovely friends at the school who we knew well, the private school that would go in and bring the classes to the children in their classrooms, wooed me. We went to visit that fall. It was the, the fall of 9-11, 2001, and it was right after September 11th. They really wooed me when I went there, and my husband was gracious enough to finally agree and say, yeah, I, I guess you, you should stay. And I stayed for a semester. So that was a big transition for me, to have that cultural experience, mm. especially as a writer, obviously, but yeah. in lots of ways. Yeah. And that was a big transition after Greenacre into the next stage of my life, I guess. That seems, again, like it was that. That was one of the boats that seemed to just show up, you know, to step into. And my mother, in the midst of all of that, had died. Mm. So that was a component for me as well. The timing with that was yeah. very significant that that had happened. When you say a transition from you from Greenacre, was it the China or the, the writing? Or Well, the or? writing was my intended transition. Mm -hmm. My mother's death changed that somewhat. It interrupted that, which is appropriate. Mm -hmm. And what I did then was the next big stage for me was to go to China, where I did more working with children than I did writing. But I also wrote when I was there. This kind editor at the newspaper, you know, invited me to keep writing. Magazines, in fact, I, I you know, I sold a lot of work when I was in China. A lot of it work I'd already written, but also of it work I, w I was writing while I was there from the perspective of taking that in, having that cultural experience. I had monstrous culture shock, and I'm mortified about it. Because we all have it. I mean, you know, nobody escapes. But I was just so embarrassed by mine. I mean, I, I, I had the honeymoon, you know, for about six weeks in China. And then I reached the point where I couldn't do anything reflexively. I was so out of my element. And, of course, I didn't have the language. I didn't have time to begin to acquire the language. It's way too complex. Yeah, it was, it was a profound, humbling, spiritual transition time. It was very effective. It's right where life needed me to be. Mm. I learned a lot during those intense two months. Months, right. when I would get impatient and frustrated and people were so kind and patient with me. Yeah. Was your daughter there at the same time? Oh yes, yeah, she was my roommate. Can you imagine my 22-year-old daughter who was really the expert in this regard was my roommate. It was such an intense pressure cooker experience. We are so close now. But that was a big transition for mother-daughter, which is, a, it's a tough thing at that sure, age. Oh, sure. boy. But yeah. it's where we were meant to be. And you survived it. We both survived it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we're hopefully different the people. better for it. Hopefully better for it. And yeah. the bond that we share, which I'm very grateful, and it's probably the place to end, is um, she now teaches for a Montessori school, and I like to go in there and help. And she and I share this love of the spiritual nature of children. I love the virtues in life. That's what I look for. That's what the writing that I do now that matters to me are, are these columns, and that's their focus. But the other big area of emphasis is 
this innate spiritual nature of children. And the book project, I have several. My problem is I have too many things going at once. But the one that really means a lot to me is a book about the spiritual nature of children and how to recognize, acknowledge, work with, and nurture that. And that's not my book. That's my daughter's and my book. That's a book that, should it come to fruition, will have two names because it's ours. And she's my expert. You know, she's my resident researcher and expert. She's the one. And she also is innately incredibly wise about the nature of children. Mm. And she always has been. Mm. As a very young person, she was. It's, it's one of her gifts of the Holy Spirit, as we say, you know, we're talking about today. Yeah. yeah. Well, I look forward big. to seeing it. I hope maybe you have a chance to interview her. Who knows? Okay. <laughs> well, Phyllis, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Warren. I'm very grateful. It's, it's a privilege. Thank, thank you very you. much. You're welcome. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Phyllis Ring, a Baha'i and freelance writer who lives in Exeter, New Hampshire. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station.